Okay, Parshas Vayelech. We are coming towards the end. It is chapter 31 in the book of Deuteronomy. And in the big blue book, it's page... 195. 195. 195. 195. 195 in the blue book. Okay. Parshas Vayelech is, if not the shortest Torah portion of the shortest Torah portion, it has a grand total of 30 verses. Okay, 1095. It has a grand total of 30 verses. And Wait, what? 30. 30 verses. Oh, I thought you said three. And I was really confused. No, 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 no. Three would, yeah, three would, yeah, no. How many 30. does um, Nitzvah? Nitzvah has about 40. Nitzvah has about 40. Wait, so, I thought Nitzvah, I thought that was the shortest one. No, no, Vayelech is shorter. Nitzvah and Vayelech combined are still short. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. The two of them together are only 70 verses. Your average Torah portion has more than that. And Nitzav Vayelech and Hazinu combined are still shorter than the longest Torah portion, which is Nusso, which is 176 verses. I remember Whoa. sitting in Shul, like, flipping through, and I'm like, okay. Is this over? <laughs> it's, it's also the same thing. Oh, Nusso, Nusso, Nusso goes on forever. Yeah. Nusso goes on forever. How many epaphs It's like March time. That's when they go. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. In Nusso is when they do the gifts that the heads of tribes gave, and, and they like gave the, the exact same oh, thing. Yeah. They in, had in, to say in, it individually. What? It was necessary to say each one. Right, because each person is an individual, and their intention makes their gift different. So that's why instead of. But does it state their intention too? It doesn't. But the commentators all talk about their intention. Oh, how do they know? How does anybody know anything in the oral tradition? <laughs> they talked about it, and they talked about it, and they talked about it. This is why I struggle. <laughs> How do you know? Can I just say something? For us, it's old history. In, when they were learning Torah, Moses was teaching Torah. He didn't just teach the verses. It was like a conversation, and they were talking about this, and they were talking about this, and he said this, and he expanded this, and he expanded that. That, all that, is the oral Torah. And now the question, and now the problem is, the problem is that oral Torah was not allowed to be written down. Oral tradition was not allowed to be written down. So then, you know, when you play a game of telephone tag with 10 people, you lose information. What happens if you play telephone tag over 50 generations? You're going to lose information. And that's where like, well, what do they say? What do they say? That's why to us today, we're trying to track back conversations that happened centuries ago. So some of the pieces we have, some of the stuff got codified, some of the stuff got lost in the shuffle, lost in the shuffle. some of the stuff. Listen, you know, we live in an age of a printing press, and, and forget about printing press. Of, a printer. No, no, besides a printer, you could just scan it, like just share it. We never have to put out the paper or anything. Like our access to knowledge is, is, it's, yeah, it's like, like we nothing we've never had. That our ancestors learned. Never mind that we not. Never mind what we learn. Never mind what we learn. What we have access to is unimaginable. Unimaginable. It's actually going to come up in our Torah portion. So, what a nice segue to our Torah portion. Okay, so here we are. Parshas Vayelech. Vayelech means, and he went. So the first thing that he says, okay. In chapter 31, Moshe goes and he speaks to all the, to all the people. And if you remember from last week's Torah portion, Parshas Nitzavim, he gathered all the people and he started talking to him. And that was last week. Today, and we said there, Rashi said that Moshe gathered them on the last day of his life. Here he actually says it. Here he says it. Verse 2 says, 
He said to them, Ben Mea Vesum Shana Anochi Hayom. I am 120 years old today. Today, my, my life is complete. There's a whole conversation in Hasidut and different commentaries about what is the significance of a person who is born and passes away on the same day. And it, and it really is highlighting an incredible, incredible, incredible level of completion. You're not, your, your count is not off by anything. Like you're born and you pass away on the same day. That means like you filled your time like amazingly. It's not such a common thing, even with righteous people. You don't see a lot of people who are born and pass away on the same day. And Moshe highlighting it here is, is really sort of saying like his whole mission, his whole everything, it's wrapping up here. It's all here. And he's going to give him his, the last push that he can. He says, I can't go with you anymore. Hashem doesn't let me. Now, the commentaries talk about that the reason he can't go with them anymore is not because he's physically unable to. It's he, when he hit the rock. Right? That was years ago. That was 40 years ago he hit the rock. But that's no, why he <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah. He's can't, he hit the rock 40 years ago and again a year ago, whatever. He, he's not going in to, to the land of Israel on, in, text, in text reasoning because, of, because he hit the rock. Okay? Kabbalah and Hasidus has a whole different, whole different conversation going on over there about leaders and, and who their leaders and followers the quick, the quick, uh, the quick um, cliff notes of it is that leaders and followers, generations need to stick together. And Moses, Moses's generation did not make it into the Holy Land. He's handing it off to, to you. He's handing it off to Joshua. Yes, but we are Moses's people. They died already. They buried it. They're all buried in the desert. Mm-hmm. So he's saying. So he's saying with them. He's the only one who made it to hundred twenty. No, it's not. It's a no, no, we don't he know. He outlived most of them. He outlived a lot of them. There were some people who were old. If somebody was 60, they, you know, whatever. There were, he wasn't the only one, but, but according to Kabbalah, that's why Moshe doesn't go into, into, the, into, the, into, the, into the land of Israel. Because he is the leader of the generation that did not go into the land of Israel. Like so if he leaves, exactly, if he leaves, who stays with the people? Kind of thing. Oh, so that's a that's kind of like a more wholesome reason. Though. Yeah. Well, listen, I, but 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 the text is but the but the truth of the text is the truth of the text. Yeah. Yeah. Why so we. It, sorry. Why does it matter who stays with the dead people in the desert? Right. So so if we believe that this is all we have, mm-hmm. then who then it doesn't matter. But if there is a soul, and at some point in, please God. It's going to be kind of creepy, but when bodies and souls come back together again, mm-hmm. they're going to come back and they're going to say like, whoa, where's, where's Moses? Okay. How, we don't even know where to go. We don't, how do we go anyplace? Uh, so okay. it's not the question of now for the last couple of thousand years yeah. where there is no, but, but we believe that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead and there is going to be the, re, the reuniting of a generation and its leaders. Okay. So they oh. need Moses then, not for the time that... Not, not for the in-between time. Not the physical body, but Bidiuk. when Mashiach comes. Exactly. It's not their physical bodies. Their physical bodies, their physical bodies are probably decomposed and don't exist anymore. But the spiritual connection stays forever. Okay. Shall I you? have a minor side point question. Do you believe that new millions of bodies will suddenly exist because we all believe in the fact that like souls are, are recycled? Like someone, someone passes away, right. a soul goes up, they review their, their life with Hashem, and then it comes back down. 
So when Mashiach comes, all these souls from Moshe's times that have been recycled and recycled and recycled and recycled, where do all those people go? How, which nisham, which version so, so, of the nisham so, so the, 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 the Are millions of bodies suddenly going to pop up? First of all, those bodies already existed. All those my body was already used by no, but it was meaning it's not the question of the body; it's the question of the soul. And the thing with a soul is that a soul is not corporeal. It's the best analogy for a soul is fire. So don't you think the soul is probably going to remember all of the times that it was down here? But then, but then, no, but then, no. That then, what happens? How does if the soul came to ten different bodies? All of it's going to come back. Ten people are going to be in one body. No, 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 no. No, the soul is so going to be in ten bodies. So but like, does that make it like? Oh, like, 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 like what? Does that make the soul or in one? No, no. So it will split into as many bodies as it had. It could be worse. Ladies, let's let's try to stay focused a little bit, okay? Let's try to let's try to stay focused a little bit. First of all, the answer to the question is I don't know. Okay, let's let's be honest. None of us have been there. Let, none of us have been there. We don't really know what's going to happen, right? Because um, I know a lot of things about a lot of things, but I don't know everything about everything. No. But what's in meaning? If we were to think about it, the, the, I could I could make the question even weirder. Should I make the question weirder? Yeah. Okay. Why not? What happens? What happens? What happens if somebody passes away at whatever age they passed away, and their children? Lived longer than the parent. Uh-huh. And then resurrection comes. Is my mother now 10 years younger than me? <laughs> what about oh, the babies who die as babies? I'm just saying. Are... I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> this is... That was my question, too. Like, so again, I don't know. Wait and see. Let's see if but it happens. Please, God, it'll happen in our lifetime. I was like, oh my gosh, that is so weird. I can't believe that's what it looks like. like not it says, too, that everyone's going about, to be like, resurrected the way that they're remembered. So but is it the way that Hashem remembers them or we remember? Because our memory is so subjective. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. These are all, these are all very good questions. But let's try to think of the Parsha. Because even though it's only 30 verses, the way we're going, we're not even going to get through them. Okay. So... That what? What doesn't matter? No, no. Everything matters in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> Fine. 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 What? What? Yeah, we're not going off topic. We're not going off topic. More. We're not going more off topic. We've already been there, done that. Right. Because you say basically you're saying that the matrix is the matrix is true. Okay. Fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. I don't think so. I think it's not because God said there is a world and therefore there is a world and we are real. And uh, we might not be, we, not, we might not be the ultimate existence, but uh, we're, you know, we definitely think higher of ourselves than we're, you know. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So, uh, so, so Moshe says to the people, I'm not going into the land of Israel with you. It's not called the land of Israel. But he says, I'm not crossing the Jordan with you. Hashem's going to go before you. And he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna appoint Joshua to be the leader. And he says in the, in the second Ali, he says that Hashem is, going to, uh, Hashem is going to fight for you. And he's going to do what he did to Sichan and Og. And he's going to really take care of everything. And it's interesting. If you look at verse 6, chapter 31, verse 6, this is part of the bracha. That goes to the bracha that we make for the soldiers. Um, we make a mishabach for the soldiers. Hashem is not going to 
get tired. He's not going to leave you alone. And so that's part of the, just, I thought that's very interesting, interesting thing. The next thing that we have, the third aliyah, is that Moshe calls Joshua in front of all of the Jewish people, and he tells him to be strong and to take the people into the land of Israel. And, um, and again, Hashem is going to be with you and don't be afraid, blah, 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 blah. The transfer of power happens in public. It's not like Moses is going to pass away. Then Joshua is going to pop up and say, oh, by the way, I'm the new leader. Like, really? Could you show your face? Could you teach in front of Moses? If you couldn't, then we don't, you know, it sort of messes with your, uh, your um, legitimacy. But Moshe makes this transfer in front of the people so the people all see that he is the next leader. Moshe writes this down. He writes this Torah down. He gives it to the Kohanim and who carry the ark. And, okay, that's, that's the third layer. So he writes the Torah. Now, if anybody's ever been to a ceremony of the completion of a Torah, we know that this is not one of those things that you just kind of whip off in a day. You sort of like, you know, and, 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 uh, and tradition tells us that Moshe actually wrote multiple Torahs on the last day of his life because, huh? Very productive. It was very productive because he gives the Torah to the, to the Kohanim, to the Levites, and all the people are like, what about us? You're going to give it just to the Levites, and then a couple of generations are going to go, and they're going to say, oh, this Torah just belongs to us. It doesn't belong to all of you. So Moshe is like very happy about that, and he writes a scroll for every single person. Not for every person, sorry, for every single tribe. So every single tribe ends up getting a Torah. So that's, and he also writes one, and we're gonna, he also writes one, it, I can't find the place right now, we'll find it, to leave in the ark. Okay, so in, in effect, Moses, Moses is going to write 13 Torah scrolls. One is going to be kept in the ark. And the question that the sages want to know, where in the ark was it? Mm-hmm. Okay, two options. Where could the ark, where could the, where could the, uh, um, where could it possibly be? So the question is raised that the ark, where the Ten Commandments were placed, right? It, has, it was two golden boxes and a wooden box, sort of like matryoshka dolls nestled together. In the center was the, was the, was that. In the center were the tablets and the broken tablets. And the Torah describes that there's a ledge on the outside and on top they have the cherubs. Where did we put this Torah? Two opinions, because of course we're Jews, we don't have one opinion. One opinion, one opinion is that we put it into the inner box with the, with the tablets and the broken tablets. And one opinion is that they put it on the ledge next to, that was sort of attached to the ark, but not in the ark. So the Hasidus wants to know, what difference does it make? Who cares? Like, it was there, what difference does it make? And really, it's the, one of the things that the Rebbe points out is that it's a lesson in how we transmit Torah. Does Torah get transmitted? Um, does it get transmitted? Anybody ever read a book in translation and then read the original book? Yes. Right? It's, it's, an, art. It, it's an art. To translate is an art. Right to make sure that you stay true to what the author was saying, but still have to be recognizable to the people who are reading the translation that it should resonate with them. Right? How do we look at Torah? And Mo- Moses is going to be the first translator because Hashem gave him the Torah. So does he keep it so tight to the original that it sits in the box with the with the tablets? It's less 
it's less contemporary, let's say, for the reader, but it's more authentic to the message. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Or, or if you say it's on the side, that means it's not, it's sort of like the language has been made accessible to the people and it's something that they can relate to. So maybe the message isn't as clearly, you know, A, B, C, exactly how it came from God, but it's definitely something that the people will be able to relate to better. And, the, and therefore, so for us today, the question is when we learn Torah, what is our relationship with Torah? Do we just go so straight to the point and we can't put it into our own words, into our own examples, into our own life? I mean, I'll tell you, true confessions, right? I used to think that when Mashiach's going to come, we're going to go back to having no running water and no antibiotics. And I wasn't so interested. I was like, I really like the slushing toilet situation. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's good for me. You know, some people are like, are you an idiot? Like, it's not like we go back to what we had then in order for it to be authentic. It could be authentic in our life today. And so that's the question of Torah. Is Torah, we're going to go back to the desert, we're going to have mana, we're going to have water from the thing, we're not having ice cream because melted in the desert. Like, what, 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 what? I don't know what that looks like, right? Do you think or, I do not think we're going to have mana. Oh. That's going to be, that would be we're my semi profession though, right? Like, technically, anyway, sorry. I don't know. I don't know. The answer is I don't know. I don't know. That's my new answer. I don't know the answer. <laughs> but, but the question is, here's, the, here's my question about Torah. Can I put Torah into contemporary language? Can I use an example that relates to my life and my struggles if it's 10 steps removed from the original? And, and the differences of opinions, Rabbi Meir brings one opinion, he says it should be tight, straight, close to the original, and Rabbi Yehuda says it has to be connected. The, the ledge is connected to the ark. It's clearly staying true to the source, but you got to make it contemporary. you got to make it so that people could actually relate to it. You're kind of, you're not stepping away from the original, but you're not boxed into the original, literally, okay? Um, and what's interesting is that the Talmud tells us that whenever Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda disagree on something, Meir comes from the root to illuminate. We always follow Rabbi Yehuda. And the reason is because Rabbi Meir was so close to the text, people didn't understand what he was saying. He was so true to the original, people just didn't understand. What, they, they couldn't follow his logic or his reasoning. So therefore, he's not, when the two of them argue, we usually go with Rabbi Yehuda. And here Rabbi Yehuda says that the Torah was put outside the ark, not in the box. And so therefore, it gives us this place to carefully be innovative with Torah so that we stay true to the source. We stay connected to the ark, but it's sort of a little bit out of the box, uh, literally and figuratively. Okay, now in the fourth aliyah, we have, an, uh, we are getting mitzvah number, I was going to say 200, it's not, 612. We have, mix, we have mitzvah number 612 and 613 are in our Torah portion here. Mitzvah number 612 is, uh, Moshe tells, commands the people that at the end of seven years, after a year of Shemitah, in the, when it's the Chag of Sukkot, when all the people come to see the and all the people come to see Hashem, wherever that place is, 
um, we should gather the people, gather all the people, the, the men, the women, the children, the, everybody comes together. And what is the purpose of this gathering? In order for them to learn, sorry, for them to hear, for them to learn. They should fear Hashem. And they will sort of be rededicated and be able to be reinvigorated to learning Torah. So there's a whole, in the, in the, in the, in the Mishnah, it has a whole description of what happened in a year. And it used to be that they would build a wooden platform in the center of the temple, and the king from the Davidic dynasty would come and he would sit. Nobody ever sat in the temple. If you think it's like hard standing for a little bit of uh, prayers over here. Nobody sat in the temple except for the king from the Davidic dynasty who sat by this, at this, this, uh, this thing. And he would read inspiring parts of the Torah to get the people to be this. Mm-hmm. Like a pep rally. <laughs> rally your troops. Like a pep rally. A little bit like a pep rally. Um, I want to add a couple of things. First of all, it's very, very interesting to me. This is my own thing. You do not, again, you do not have to buy my chalm. Um, <laughs> when did they do this hakel gathering? After Shemitah. On Sukkot, after Shemitah. Okay, so on Sukkot. That means for a regular, three times a year, you should go up and see God, blah, blah, blah. That was an, that was an obligation for men. It was not an obligation for everybody, but once, uh, once every seven years, which essentially comes out to be the eighth year, either eighth year or year one, everybody, men, women, and children, had to come to hear the king and to be inspired. And as I live in Israel, I think to myself, like, wouldn't it have been easier to do this on a Shemitah year? It's an agricultural society, in a Shemitah year, nobody's working, we all have time, like, come to Jerusalem, like, today's... You know, we complain if we sit in traffic for like a couple of hours, but if there are no real roads and there's no real good transportation, it could take days to get to Jerusalem. It could take days to get back. And this is just from like Israel proper. I'm not even talking about people coming further, right? How long could it take people to get someplace? And Hashem is saying specifically when everybody's like, we got to start planting, we got to start planting, we got to get something in the ground because we haven't planted for the whole year. And we, he's like, Yalla, everybody come visit. Come to Jerusalem. Come have this amazing celebration together. We're going to you know, be inspired. Because I think, this is a nice thing. Once we finish Shemitah, with all the challenges of faith, and how are we going to survive, and how is it going to work, and we're not going to, you know, we're nervous we're going to die of starvation, because we don't have frozen food, we don't have refrigerators. Like, it's a real issue. It's a real thing. The first step back into my normal life, Hashem saying, pause. And remember that even this part where you're going to go and you're going to plant and you're going to weed and you're going to water and whatever farmers do, I have no idea. I buy it in the fruit store. I'm very happy with that. right? <laughs> whatever it is that they do to make that food grow, all of that effort is still a bracha from Hashem. And so the, even though they're at this place of we need to, all hands on deck. You know, we got to get the, the grain into the ground before the first rains come or blah, 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 blah. Hashem says, come on, let's hang out a little bit together. Remember that even this year where it's going to be your work, it's, it's a different kind of challenge. There's a challenge of Shemitah, which means sit back and Hashem's going to take care of everything, which is, I want to say, is a stressful place to be. It's a stressful place to be, to be able to say, 
whatever I need, Hashem's going to take care of because he loves me and he doesn't want me to starve. And I don't see how this is going to work, but God, you got my back, right? That's an incredible, incredible amount of, of faith. And, and, you know, like those people who like surf into a crowd and hope everybody's going to catch them. There's a lot of faith that goes into that, right? And we're like, God, you're going to catch me. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And then the next year to say, and now my challenge is when I am actively involved in my sustenance and I am actively involved in doing whatever I need to do, I'm still really relying on Hashem. And I'm still leaning into that space of Hashem will provide and take care of me, even though I have to do all this work. Noah. What I missed what you said. What was exactly you missed the 612? 612. We only did 612. 612 is a miss of Hakel. Okay? Gathering everybody in, in the eighth year or the first year, however you want to look at it. The year after Shemitah, they would come to Jerusalem on Sukkot time and the king would read inspirational things. Bunches of years ago, I don't remember exactly when, the Rebbe started a campaign of a year of Hakel, a Shnas Hakel. That means this whole year he relabeled as a year of Hakel. What was the point of that? It's not making a new mitzvah because he had not make new mitzvahs. But he said, if the point of Hakel is to gather and to learn and to inspire, this whole year has that energy of unity, learning, and inspiration. My daughter and I decided we're starting the foundation for inspiration and education. No, uh, <laughs> F, what was our, no, we had it. Yeah, uh, FIE. The foundation for inspiration and education. Every, <laughs> we're gonna make a logo, like a whole thing. We're gonna, take, we're gonna do it, right? This year is the year for us to take every opportunity that we have as opposed to every other time, we always try to take opportunities to be nice and pleasant and blah, blah, blah. But can we personally and a little bit in our smaller circles or maybe our wider circles to create places of inspiration and education that we should walk away from encounters being more touched and more connected rather than less touched and less connected. Okay, so that's Hakel. And this year, Sukkot is officially the first time that would, be, that would, be, that would have been happening in the times of the temple. And I'm sure that wherever we're going to probably be doing stuff, hearing stuff, you're going to be seeing this phrase bandied about any Chabad center that you're going to be throughout this year. Is going to, you're going to hear about this year of Hakel, this year of Hakel, and understand that the year of Hakel is uh, an innovation of the Rebbe. It, Wait, yes. You wanted this year specifically? It's this year. It's going to be this year. This is the year after Shemitah. This is the year after Shemitah. Last year was Shemitah. This year is the year after Shemitah. But, after Rosh Hashanah. So it's our new year. He just, like, he means, like, so, like every seven years he wants a Hakel year. No, so everyone was saying, if the original Hakel was done in the year after Shemitah, so the year after a Shemitah year would be a Hakel year. We are now in a year after a Shemitah year. Yeah. We're just finished. We're, we're ish finishing a Shemitah year. I'm going to be honest with you. The Shemitah it's situation. What do you mean ish? Right? The reason I say ish is because there are different rules for Shemitah, and I'm not going to take all your time, but the cliff notes, there's different rules for Shemitah for fruits and for vegetables. So vegetables go from when they're, from when they're picked and fruits go from when the majority of the fruit grew, which means that vegetables, in theory, the day after Rosh Hashanah would be fine, except the rabbis instituted like a growth period time where it's still Shemitah because the assumption is like, had to get your cucumbers to the market two days after Rosh Hashanah. Like, when did you plant them? You're not allowed to plant them on Shemitah. So the, we have like a, a couple of weeks for how long you would legitimately be able to plant 
a buffer zone. Um, the thing with fruit is that all the winter fruit this year are actually seventh year produce because they flowered and the majority of the fruit grew in the seventh year. So they're considered seventh year produce. This last year, the winter fruit was sixth year produce. This next year, it's gonna be seventh year produce. And then once you start canning fruit and making wine and all that kind of stuff, we lived with Shemitah for a long time. Now that's why I say it doesn't totally. So this year is a hot year. Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay. So is this like mostly just like uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's not even a question. It's not even a question. Okay. I think, I think, I think that the world is, mo- is moving more, not only the Chabad world, to talking about how we're teaching and inspiring people, but this idea of a Hakel year is absolutely an innovation of the Rebbe's. Okay? I mean, I know a lot of people who like totally on Chabad and totally love the Rebbe. That's okay. That's not. That's not. That's not. That's not the question. So, so, but the question is like, like Lizzie wants to know if I go someplace and I mention this concept, are they going to look at me like I just fell off the moon? Yes. The answer is yes. Go to my friends in Haifa. Correct. Mention this. They're going to look at me like I have five pets. Correct. Correct. Because they're going to say Hakel. If they know, they'll say Hakel was in biblical times. The year after Shemitah, there is no such there is no such construct as a year of Hakel. It never existed, but for the last bunches of years, it has existed in a, in a, in a small form. Okay, then, so okay, so then the, uh, we just had We just finished Ravi. Yeah, okay, we're finishing Ravi. Yeah, yeah. We are moving into uh, Mitzvah six thirteen. But before we go into uh, Mitzvah six thirteen. Again, Moshe is talking to Yehoshua. He's sort of having this whole ceremony of having Yehoshua being the being the uh, um, the leader. And and one of the things that Hashem says is something that we've heard before that this people is going to now things are great and wonderful, but the, things are going to go downhill <laughs> as soon as things go as soon as they get. Settled and compl- and rich and satisfied, they will forget that God was behind all of this, and then things are going to go a little bit eh, whatever, and then I'm going to get upset and blah 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 blah. Okay, and then we have if you take a look at uh, chapter thirty-one, verse eighteen, Hashem's vanochi haster aster panai bayom hahu, I will surely hide my face at that time, that all the bad that that's going on and what's happening over there. Um, and then he says, and here is number 613, write for, now write this song for you, teach it to the Jewish people, put it into their mouths, that it, this song should be uh, a, um, a witness uh, to the Jewish people that I, that I brought them to the land, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? So I want to pause for a second. What's this mitzvah? No, was like, I didn't get the mitzvah here. I don't know what the mitzvah is here. But I want to say a couple of things. I want to say a couple of things. First of all, the, the preamble to the mitzvah is that things are going to be, we're going to turn away from God. Things are going to get bad. And Hashem says, I will hide my face. I will surely hide my face from you. So for, the first thing I want to point out is that when the sages want to know, Esther min hatayr where do we have the book of Esther referenced in the Torah? It's right here from this Pasuk. I will surely hide my face on that day. If you take a look at the word astir, 
Esther. We got Esther over there. Good, Alicia. We have Esther over there, and we know that the whole story of, the, of Purim, the whole Megillah story, is a place of Hashem not being revealed, where you look at it and you say it's a regular story. It's been written multiple times by multiple writers. Of the king doesn't like this one, falls in love with it, and, and Hashem is, and, and, the, and Hashem is like, it's absolutely, that's absolutely not the situation. Um, it's it's a, a place of Hashem's concealment. I want to say something else about Hashem's concealment. Somebody told me the story that in their house, they had certain requirements. Requirements might be a big word, but like how we did things. So the kids would wake up in the morning and they would wash their hands and they would say moda'ani and then they would have breakfast and blah, blah, blah. And one of the siblings came down and said, I don't want to do that. Little kid, a four-year-old, whatever age of kid, the kid's like, I'm not doing that. And the mother's like, fine, no problem. And did not look at the child. Kid sitting in the corner, crying, sort of sulking, trying to figure out. And the mother is not looking at this child. And what does the kid feel? My mother's ignoring me. My mother's ignoring me. Because I won't do what my mother wants me to do. Huh? Abandonment. A little bit of abandonment. The whole shebang, right? What does the mother say? She was never more aware of the child for that whole period of time, because that was the only place in the room she would not look. That means that child was constantly on her mind. The child feels abandoned. The child feels my mother's ignoring me. The child feels that I'm not wanted and I'm not noticed. And the mother feels, I can't pay attention to anything else because I know where that kid is and I am not looking there. And I think that sometimes if we are able to feel the places of abandonment and say, what does it look like from the other side? That this is the only place that God is not looking at right now because we have an agreement. This is what, we, this is what I said I would do and I'm not doing it. And so therefore, does it make abandonment easier to deal with? I don't know. Abandonment hurts no matter what it looks like. But can we come to a place of being able to say, can I zoom out and look at it from another angle, and then maybe I'm not being abandoned. Maybe there's a place where Hashem is trying to get me to come back into the story. Um, so I thought in this whole conversation of Hastir Astir, when we go through places, we go through times, and please God, we should never, ever, ever go through real deep places of abandonment real imagined or any other other or any other way like we should never have it we should never feel it we should never live it but but in case that isn't exactly our reality we should be able to somehow be able to feel the light that's coming through the self through this feeling of abandonment and understanding that's not really what's happening um and sometimes it's only going to happen with therapy so let's be honest about that okay um now, verse, num- verse number 19 is mitzvah number 613. And now, write for you this song and teach it to the Jewish people and sing it, uh, teach, it, teach it to the Jewish people, put it in their mouths, blah, blah, blah. They should have this song as a, as a testimony. That's not uh, a witness, not a testimony. Same idea, but different angles. Um, 
What's the song? So Rashi says, right? What's the song? And I was like, don't look at me. I don't have the answer. So Rashi says, Rashi says, if you take a look, the next Torah portion that we're not going to be doing together, which is Parshas Hazinu, if you look, it's going to pick up from chapter 32, okay? I don't know if, how what looks like. Yeah, okay? If you look in an actual Chumash, or you look in your, in your Chumash in here, if you look at a Torah scroll, it's actually written like poetry. It's written in columns. Okay, if you take a look. Hazinu is, a, is a, considered a song. It talks about our relationship with Hashem, what we promise to do, what Hashem promised to do, what's going to happen. It's like, might not be the, the most cheerful song that you always read, but it's, it really is a, it's a, a testimony and a witness of what we said we would do and what Hashem said He would do and about that relationship. Parenthetically, there are lots of, pe- there are lots of business people who say the chapter of Hazinu every single day because it reminds them of the source of their blessing and reminds, you know what I mean? It's like sort of putting that, those pieces back together. So Rashi says, when it says to write this shira, write this song, we're talking about the next section of the Torah, Hazinu, which is written out like a song. It's given the, called shiras Hazinu. Um, why don't we learn it? Why don't we learn it? People learn it, sure they do. Yeah, like usually in school you learn shiras Hana, you learn shiras Devorah. Depends, it depends what, what school you go to and what grade you got up to. But yeah, you do use, you do learn it. Um, yep. Um, it's also very hard to understand. It's like it's not an. Shir's Hana is like much easier to understand. Um, so has anybody made it into a song? That's a good question. Not that I know of. Okay. So um, so what do I want to say? So Rashi says we're talking about Hazinu. Now there is a there is a law that you cannot write part of the Torah without the whole Torah. So when Moshe is saying that you should have write this song Hazinu, it means to write a Torah scroll that includes Hazinu. Some of the other commentators talk about the idea that Hashem was telling Moshe and Joshua to write copies of Hazinu and give it to all the tribes, like sort of like inspirational things that go through WhatsApp, like send it around so everybody should have it and have access to it. Um, the Maimonides, Rambam says that when we talk about the Shira, we're actually talking about all of the Torah. We're not talking about this isolated part of Hazinu. We're talking about the place of all of Torah. Um, that, that there should be, we should have copies of Torah. Now, it's so interesting because this is how we started our conversation about how easily accessible texts are to us in whatever language we're going we're gonna to read them, but it's very easily accessible. Once upon a time, if you didn't actually have a Torah scroll, you had nothing to learn. What, would you, what could you learn from? All the basic learning love story is the Torah. All the commentary and everything that comes from it is based on the Torah. So one of the things that, that Maimonides is talking about is that there is, and this is according to Maimonides, when he counts the mitzvahs, he counts mitzvah 613 to write a Torah scroll for yourself. And Maimonides says, in case you even inherited a Torah scroll from your parents, it is a good thing to be able to write one for yourself, that, is, it, that there's a commandment to write a scroll for yourself. Now, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, very expensive to write a Torah scroll. B, you need a lot of very particular knowledge in order to write a Torah scroll. Okay? So there are lots of people who, at different points, will commission somebody to write a Torah scroll for them. Um, one of the things, again, something that the Rebbe spoke about a lot, was to jointly be part of a Torah. If you have ever been in a community that is writing a Torah scroll, they will sell 
verses, they will sell letters, they will sell chapters that when I purchase part of the Torah, it is as if I have the whole Torah, as if the whole Torah is mine, because the Torah is indivisible. You can't just say, oh, we're going to just leave this letter out, we'll just leave this parsha out, it's going to be fine. No, if we aren't all part of it, so then by us owning a letter or a part or something, we are in fact, it's as if we have fulfilled the commandment of, of writing our own Torah scroll. I want to give a, a, my take on the situation. If mitzvah number 613 is to write a Torah scroll for yourself, and the purpose is that you should know what to do, this is God's way of telling us, go buy a Jewish book. Go buy a book of inspiration. Go buy a book of knowledge. We're supposed to own a Torah scroll. We're supposed to, what was the point of having the Torah? So we should know what to do. So this is definitely my take on the situation. But absolutely, if you were so inclined to go buy yourself a book and you needed an excuse to do it, you're like, dude, I'm not going to buy myself a Torah scroll because that costs like $50,000, but I can splurge for a book. So that's my one thing. I want to sort of highlight something that, sh- that Noah actually mentioned casually. She said, did, did, anybody, did anybody set Hazina to a song? And I think it's very, very incredible that when we talk about Torah, it's referred to as a song. It's referred to as Shira. To write this song for ourselves. And um, the first thing I want to say about song is if you've ever learned anything by a rhyme or by a song or whatever, you remember it it forever. You're going to remember it forever. That's how I learned how to daven. Like, I never learned how to read it, but I learned how to sing. Yeah, but if you actually learn, but once you learn how to read it, you realize that you're mispronouncing a lot of yeah. words. Just yeah. saying. I just say. Like you hear these songs and you want to know what a Dawnser light looks like. It's not a Dawnser light, right? Um, uh, so first of all, first of all, uh, if we set things to songs, we will remember it. If anybody's ever been to preschool, 30 days, half September, April, June, and November, right? Have very good. It says very well, it says very right. Anything that was set to music or set to um or set to a ch- to some kind of rhythm we remember how many times have we been in the mall possibly without your headphones in your head because it also doesn't work mm-hmm. and you walk by a uh, you walk by a store yeah. and you get a blast of a song and all of a sudden you're in the sixth grade again yes. <laughs> right like there's a place like music is one of these things that absolutely um Transports us, transports us. So we had a student in my note a bunch of years ago. I don't remember his name is Ru- is Reuven for me from Atlanta. <gasps> Stop it! I'm. S- oh my gosh, no! I'm really good friends with this family. Okay, yeah. so he's a real live person. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and Reuven he's once said a Torah amazing. at our. Reuven said a Torah at our house Sorry. that I have, that I have um, repeated since I heard it from him. And one of the things he said is that music is very, very personal. And what, what sounds like junk to you sounds like music to somebody else. I'm paraphrasing him. This isn't exactly what he said. But everybody has a different style of music that resonates with us and that we hear it and it just, our soul comes alive. Music has that ability. And his Torah was, and his bracha then was, that we should all find our music in Torah, that whatever music speaks to us, we should put Torah to those, to those tunes because 
because if it's not personal, if it doesn't resonate with us, it's just not going to resonate with us. And it's not going to be something that we go back to again and again and again. So that was the bracha that I heard from Reuven, and I, I repeat it all the time from there. I want to say an interesting thing. In the line of, I don't really know if this is true, but um, there was conversation about, you know, the, in the, in the Beis HaMikdash, in the temple, the Levites used to play music. And the question is, like, are we all going to have to go back and listen to harps or whatever, like they were playing violins, whatever their instruments were. And somebody said that, I don't know if they were saying that, wouldn't this be cool or this is a real thing? So that everybody would hear the music to the tune that resonated with them, that the Levium were playing and everybody heard the music differently. I don't know. I'm, I'm open to that. Like, it totally, it's, it's an interesting thing. I don't know. I don't know if it has any kind of source anyplace, except some random conversation we had. So can you imagine you go to the, you go to the base of Mikdash, the Levium are playing. This one here is classical. This one here is, you know, rock and roll. This one here is jazz. This one here is trance. It's like, we're all so happy because the music is speaking to our soul. And, and I would like to believe that the base of Mikdash has the ability, and Torah has the ability to incorporate all of the things, all the styles of music that speak to our soul and that speak to us uh, in a really, uh, in a really deep way. <sighs> okay. Um, Moshe writes it down. He gives it over, and da 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 da. Then they're gonna, then they're gonna give it to the. That's basically where the Torah portion ends. He tells, gives it to the people, and they start, start doing. They do hazinu. Um, I want to give us a bracha. And the bracha is that we find our music in Torah. That we find, A, that we learn things to a tune that resonates with us. The first challenge that I'm going to give everybody is for when we come back to class after Sukkot, and we're going to be learning Boratius together for like five minutes. Um, I would like to challenge each of us to learn all the Torah portions in the book of Boratius. It will be easier and more memorable if you set it to a tune that resonates with you. Um, so that's, that's, that's one little challenge. But I really, I really think that the bracha of music and Torah is that it transports us. And I want to give us a bracha that we connect, whether it's to Nagunim, whether it's to Torah through song, that when we, like we're walking through the mall and we hear a snatch of music from the side and we're now in sixth grade again, that we should have some music that resonates with us so deeply that whenever we hear it, we're back in the Beit Midrash together, we're learning Torah together, we're inspiring each other, we're being inspired, and we're inspiring. So I want to give us a bracha that we really have our song in Torah, that we find our song, and that we let it shine out and sing to other people who are able to resonate with that tune that we love as well. Have an awesome rest of the day, and a great Shabbos. Um, two, two things. First of all, I forgot to say, Shabbos, this coming Shabbos is called Shabbos Shuva or Shabbos Shuva. Um, Shabbos Shuva because it's within the, because the Haftar is Shuva Yisrael, talking about the Jews coming back, you know, doing Shuva. It's also called Shabbos Shuva because it's in the 10 days of Shuva. And lots of rabbis give lots of long speeches on Shabbos Shuva or Shabbos Shuva. We do not do that in my notes, shockingly enough. Um, but uh, just something to talk about, to think about. And then, yeah, have an amazing, meaningful Yom Kippur, a joyous Sukkot, and we'll learn to work together again.
you know, so when you were talking about like the two 